Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One. Welcome to the first episode of our Box and One podcast. And we can't think of a better way to start off this series than with Caitlin Cooper, Indy Cornrows, 538. <laughs> she is all over the place and she is putting out some awesome work. She had a killer article in her debut for 538 this week. And we can't think of anyone better than to have on our first episode. Caitlin, the first question that everyone wants to know, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Now I'm kind of nervous though. Like if, if I have to be good in this inaugural episode, otherwise you'll be like, I'm never listening to him again. Listeners, you only have to listen to me today. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. No pressure on you at all, <laughs> but uh, really glad that you're able to join us here and, and let's, let's dive right in, you know, it, with starting a new podcast, I'm, I'm all about traditions here. And, and one tradition that I'd like to start is having the first question be the same amongst all of our guests. So, Caitlin, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here with the first one. You're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? Yes, this is a tricky. This is like a controversial question, I feel. So I think the context probably matters. Do I have the ball on the sideline out of bounds, or is this at the inbound? Or where does the other team have the ball, I mean? So all those questions and and impacts matter. I think the the thought process for me – is more so of trying to answer the question, do you prevent them from taking the shot or would you rather play it out and take your chances? I think that you? my instruction would be that I would tell the players we're going to foul if you can get the player catching the ball going away from the basket. If they're catching the ball going toward the basket, no. I love it. I love that's, it. That's what I think I would say. We think alike in that area. So Caitlin, Talk to, to us a little bit about, you know, your background and how you got into, into writing. You got into even such detailed analysis of the Pacers of the NBA as a whole. What's your background? Right. So I think I'm actually pretty boring. Um, <laughs> grew up in Indiana and my dad started coaching when I was around 10 or 11 years old. I think I was a fifth grader. So I was just always around high school basketball in Indiana. Like I trailed along anywhere I could go. I started taking stats when I was in junior high at all of his games and learning the game that way. And I was also playing myself. So I was pretty much in a gym somewhere, whether it was a scouting trip, I feel like a huge percentage of my life. And um, he was nice enough that, you know, I got to go on those trips. So I was around a lot of different coaches in addition to him. So I heard a lot of different voices and that kind of gave me a background and just knowing some basketball vocabulary. And then when I started writing, you know, I try to follow smart people like you and others who share clips where I can continue to learn more. And I just kind of grew from there. Awesome. And, and I know we share the Indiana link. My first three years out of college, I was coaching at a, a high school there. So Indiana high school hoops is uh, it's the real deal. It's a great way yep. to, to really cut your teeth and, and learn the game a little bit. So um, how did it transition from there into the, the writing side of things? And, and you have, you know, a ton of X's and O's of knowledge. You, you really get the game on a, on a holistic perspective. It's not just, Hey, this is the play we're going to, tell you what the other team is running, you really get down to the nitty gritty of why. I mean, where did you begin to to drill down into that and, and nuance your skills in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination, like just from a writing standpoint, I initially, my first major at college was history. So compounding, like that teaches you how to research. I mean, it teaches you how to consolidate your thoughts and to present them, I hope in a digestible way. I hope that's what people feel like when they read my stuff. So then when I got done with school, I kind of felt like I was drifting a bit. My sister actually recommended to me. She's like, you know, I think that you could do this. I think that you could use some of that knowledge and write about basketball. And I was iffy about it. And I was like, you know, 
I think I'll try that. So I'm sure some of those very early blogs six years ago or however long it's been now are probably quite embarrassing in retrospect, but um, you just try to get better every day. You just try to do, I mean, I call it kind of continuing studies. I mean, I get on, especially during the quarantine time, we have all this downtime, you know, there's FIBA videos. There's always coaches talking and teaching somewhere where you can go and learn more. And I try to do that. So try to expand the breadth of my knowledge as best as I can. For sure. Well, you, you bring up a good point there. I went back during the pandemic and, and a little bit into this past spring, looking at my initial articles when I started writing. And, oh boy, there's some, some rough <laughs> stuff in there. Um, so we all get better. And, and now you're at 538, which unbelievable, unbelievable publication and a great spot, I think, for the combination of what you write about, which is the X's and O's intersection with a lot of the statistical analysis and, and you know, bringing that aspect to it. So you started there with a, an amazing debut, talking about really the threat of shooting as much as the impact of shooting itself. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the impetus behind the article. I know you said it was brewing in your head for a long time, uh, yeah. but, but where does that idea come from? Yeah, so I think just like defensive perception and what actually reshapes defenses is something I look at all the time on the court. Because, you know, we talk about the concept of, you know, stretch fours and stretch fives. Well, are they actually stretching it or are they just shooting threes that are open? And, you know, I think that it becomes pretty easy to just, you know, open up basketball reference and look at somebody's three point percentage and decide, oh, that'll give them a, a spacer no matter how high or low that number is. So. That was something I was looking at. And then I don't even know if these conversations ever actually took place with the Pacers or not, but there were several outlets that reported that there was a possibility that Houston wanted to move up in the draft and for the Pacers number 13th pick, and that maybe the Pacers would be willing to look for an established player. And there was connections with Eric Gordon and the Rockets. And obviously that never went anywhere. The Pacers took Chris Duarte, but during that time, like I don't write a lot of hypotheticals. I try to stick away from, you know, trying to cover rumors because you never know what's out there is real or not. But I did a ton of research on Eric Gordon during that time. And I noticed some of these things and I was like, that would be a really killer article. Somebody should write about that. And it got to be early August during the doldrums of the NBA season. I was like, why can't that person be me? Like that, that can be me. So I took a weekend and a half and started just really watching as much as I could and trying to do the writing process. And then 538 had reached out earlier in the summer and kind of put it out there that I could pitch something. And so that was the piece that I pitched. I never imagined that the first national article wouldn't be about the Pacers, but here we are. Kind of tangentially it was, but. Right. Right. No, it was, it was great. And, and I mean, I know we'll talk a little bit more about the findings and, and the overall analysis or takeaways from it, but I'd love to get your thought as someone who dove really deeply into the film and the numbers. How much does, does reputation really play a factor in all of this with, you know, garnering the respect from beyond the three-point line? Is it something that you earn by enough time making a certain percentage of shots? Is it data-driven? Is it you know, we know this guy has the ability, even though the numbers aren't falling, we have to guard him. From your thought process, you know, how much does reputation play a role in how somebody is guarded? Yeah, and I think that's the big question is, is how long will teams continue to do that too? Because if you look at the two extremes, like a lot of people wanted to parlay this into having meeting for Ben Simmons, and I'm not sure that it does. Um, I think that a lot of this is very context matters and somewhat player specific. But like, if you think, you know, Ben Simmons starts shooting threes, well, how long is it actually going to take for a defense to care that he's shooting those threes? And how many is he going to have to make? And vice versa, like, let's say Clay Thompson comes back from his injury and is not shooting the ball quite as well. 
I think, I think teams are still going to care about Clay Thompson. So I think that that showed up somewhat with Eric Gordon and why he was such a specific case is because not only was he shooting the ball at a really high level from a deep range early in his tenure with Houston, but also the change of who was out there with him and that that gravity was gone. The person that was drawing two people before was no longer there. So where does that defender go? And just in the in-between of it is kind of a fake it till you make it um, situation where even if you aren't making those shots, if you look and you act like a shooter, that can draw the defenders out there. I mean, I talked about this, I think a year ago, I wrote an article about Miles Turner and kind of encouraging him to do some of that because there would be times where he would catch the ball and he wouldn't even look at the rim or he would automatically be trying to get rid of it if somebody stunted toward him. If you're not actively acting like a shooter, then it's easier for the defenders to ignore you. And that kind of happens somewhat at the big spot anyways. But Eric Gordon very much acts like a shooter. He's going to come across half court and be taking these really early threes. And, and I think that makes teams a little bit more cognizant of him. So it's amazing how much confidence plays a role in that. And I don't really know how you quantify somebody's confidence, right? Even yeah. if I'm a 31% three-point shooter over a long sample size, which is typically below average in the NBA, if I shoot it with confidence and believe the next one's going to go in and continue to take a decent volume at some point, you have to guard me like a shooter, right? And it's, I think the symbiotic relationship, that push-pull of, you know, with Harden and Gordon and the relationship there, is he a really good shooter because he's getting more open looks and that's a, a result of somebody forcing defenses to collapse. And if that goes away, does he have to move farther out in order right. to, to get a lot of that, that volume or the same quality of, of space to get a shot up? It's a, it's a really, really interesting thought. And, and what I loved your, your point on was the, the early clock stuff, right? I think that that's the definition of confidence uh, as well as probably the intersection of confidence and, you know, I'm not going to get a better look later in the clock. So I got to launch now. Uh, what's, what's your thought on it advantageously? Is that good for the offense? Is that good for the defense to encourage quick shots? I know as you dove into the numbers, was there anything you found specifically with Houston on those possessions? Right. So, I mean, if you look back at the series, when they really pushed the Warriors, I think if you look at those numbers, the only person in the playoffs that year who was taking more shots between 22 and 18 seconds was Giannis because the Bucs were just playing in such a track meet style and he is Eric Gordon's effective field goal percentage leading up into that series was very high on those shots so if you come across half court and you're already trying to account for Chris Paul and James Harden and then the second Eric Gordon gets across that's putting a lot of pressure on the defense and the other thing that Eric Gordon has to his benefit is he's not just this guy that all he can do is catch the ball and shoot if you do think twice and you do come out there further against him, he can put the ball on the floor and get to the basket. So what looks like, I think a lot of coaches, I mean, Nate McMillan would even reference this at times when he was still coaching the Pacers is like, we're not going to be this run and gun team. Who's just going to have the greenest of green lights and be taking shots that we could get at any time. Like, so, but if you're Eric Gordon, what might seem reckless to others, if you can actually do this and connect on him, isn't so reckless for you. And he's kind of continued that habit. And you see that like, you know, Steven Silas was using some transition screens to get him even more extra breathing room. But then you watch in some of the clips I have in that article. Now suddenly he's in the half court and Dylan Brooks is literally has his hand on him right. 30 feet out. So it's a very interesting dynamic. For sure. For sure. So I, I know as authors, we always hate to have pieces of our article read back to us <laughs> or, or reference, but I'm going to, I'm going to do that pet peeve for you right now. So there's one, one crux and one, 
piece of this that really stood out to me as a, a huge takeaway and, and just to, to share it with everybody here. Um, while taking deeper threes likely contributed to the dip in Gordon's overall three-point percentage, it's clear that continuing to stand further behind the arc redistributed some of the tension on the defense, opening opportunities for others, even without Harden as an all-world difficult cover. So, I mean, so much to take away from that. For me, Gordon really cut his teeth as a great threat next to Harden when those Houston teams were really strong, were open-paced, and, and the floor was completely spread, and developed this rep reputation to gun not just at the three-point line, but far behind it. And as he continued to do so, even in the absence of Harden, you know, he his shot profile essentially opened up more space for other Rockets to attack for the paint to be a little bit clearer. And, you know, if analytics really tells us one thing, it's not necessarily that threes are the end all be all it's that the value of the threes and how much it opens up the rim for others, which is still the, the prime, you know, location for shots to come from. Uh, as I'm diving into that quote and really thinking about what Gordon has done, how much of that is really dependent on you need a star to set you up to gain that reputation or, and how much of that is really just an elite shooter always has gravity, no matter who he's playing with. Yeah. I mean, it's so tough to parse and to separate because he had those few years where that was his benefit. In addition to having Chris Paul as well. I just think that, you know, there was a lot of people that commented in the replies after that got published and they're like, would you tell people to, train shooters to be shooting deeper ones like even if it wasn't somebody who is Eric and I think that again context matters like I think that you would have to be yeah there would have to be active training where you were really you know teaching rhythm routine and habit so that there would be some degree of proof of product like I don't really think that if you just put um, TJ McConnell out there and told him shoot a 30-foot shot that that's really going to do that much for for your spacing but if you're Eric and you have a shot that looks smooth and you're willing to continue, because I mean, that's a piece of this too. He's willing to continue taking these shots, even though it is somewhat harming his three point percentage. I mean, we know today that there's guys who want to hold the ball past a certain time so that they don't have a heave that puts that percentage down and he's willing to continue taking them. Cause like you said, the numbers showed that pretty much every ball handler he played with was able to get to the rim more when he was out there. But I mean, I think the main crux of that is kind of something you touched on before too, that if, if you're standing in this like kind of quote unquote Houston spot where you're basically lodged between the hash mark and the, the sideline, if somebody, I think a lot of times we coach people, if they're going to be at the nail to take one step back and, and two steps over, if you do that, you're basically at the three point line versus if you're putting the person at the slot and you take one step back and you're two steps over, you're at the nail. You're literally mucking up the driving lane versus here. It's a much longer closeout. So even if you are, you know, the same amount of distance, it's a cleaner shot, but. Yeah. Well, it's so fascinating. I think Eric Gordon has gotten a little bit of a bad rap in the last couple of years in Houston after James Harden left. He's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. His contract is larger than what you would typically look for for a, a role player at, maybe at this stage in his career, more of a scoring role player who's not as much of a great defensive threat. And it's hard to envision what type of team would make the acquisition for him to get him out of Houston. But what I really took away was that he has a lot of value uh, outside of what the numbers say or, or how things are translating over in Houston, that his willingness to continue to take these shots, the floor spacing from deep is not just valuable for any team, but will especially pop if he's paired with a, another great slasher and attacker 
in both the half court and, and in transition. So really a, a fascinating name to me uh, to watch over the next year or so in, in trade rumors, trade markets, and just to see what ends up being next for, for Eric Gordon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd be kind of surprised. We'll see going into the trade deadline. It seems like he's hungry. I mean, it has to be hard to go from, you know, competing in the Western Conference finals and and being out there with an MVP candidate to being on the team that had the worst record last year. But certainly he's been a consummate professional by all reports out of Houston. So be interested to see if a contender gets hungry there. I mean, especially since the last year of his contract isn't guaranteed, which was new to me. I mean, I think there is like, I saw a caveat that if he helps the team that he gets traded to win a championship, then I think that part of it does become guaranteed. So that's a piece of it. But um, yeah, I remember whenever I first, when that first got mentioned in conjunction with the Pacers, I had like a tweet that was like, well, I'm going to prepare to have tomatoes thrown at me, but I think that he still adds some degree of value here, but that's what I ended up finding. So, and, and I write for Celtics blog and we had a lot of those same conversations with the traded player exception that continually is the gift that keeps giving for Celtics fans so that roll over <laughs> from year to year. So Gordon's name has come up and, and will continue to come up with what to do with that trade exception or, or other large deals in the future. Um, so, you know, great stuff there with that, that 538 article, but, you know, like you've mentioned, you're, you're a Hoosier uh, and, and an Indiana Pacers, really the, one of the best spots to go to get coverage on the Indiana Pacers for me has always been Indy Cornrows and the work that you and, and the rest of the team have done over there. So uh, I think it's time to pivot over to a team that's one of the more fascinating ones, in my opinion, moving forward and looking to the season, but man, the, the injuries, I mean, I, there's no, no other place to start right now for what's really been, I guess, year three now of such a, an oft injured team. How much does that disrupt internal evaluation of the team and, and change expectation? Because it's so hard to figure out what this team is going to look like at its best because they just haven't been together. Right. I mean, now they're at, they're at three years running where they've been without at least one starter in the playoffs. They didn't have Victor Oladipo against the Celtics, didn't have Sabonis in the bubble against the Heat, and then didn't have TJ Warren, Karis Liver, and Miles Turner in the play-in tournament. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly not helpful. And now to start the season, they obviously, TJ Warren is still on an indefinite absence. And now there's news that Karis Levert has a stress fracture, which sounds like it's going to be somewhat minor, but still, like, you have another new coach. It's their third coach in three years. You're trying to implement stuff at training camp. If he can't be a complete participant along with TJ Warren, it's not exactly helpful when you're headed into preseason that a group that's never played a single minute of basketball together still isn't going to play a single minute of basketball together yet. So definitely a piece. Yeah. And, and Levert has dealt with injury issues in the, in the past and Brogdon has not been uh, the most, you know, durable guy out there uh, by any means either. So, you know, trying to figure out the balance for this roster moving forward, it's, it's, it's challenging. And I know at the center of this has always been the Sabonis and Turner fit every single year. The, the national headline, when you're talking about the Pacers seems to circle back to that point of, can they play together? Is this really the, the fulcrum of an offense that can make a deep run in the playoffs with essentially two bigs at the, the center of it? Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your and a short-term and long-term thoughts on where the roster is right now. I mean, what do you think is the, the best case scenario for this season? And then how much success can carry over into future years building around the core that they kind of have right now? 
for me personally, I think it's got to be kind of playoffs or bust. If you get to the end of this year and this team doesn't make the playoffs or doesn't look competitive in the playoffs, it's, it's time to make changes because you've been at this for enough years now. You've switched out the coaches enough times. Like it, it's probably time to, to at least rule to retool around the margins. I mean, they're not going to be a team. I, I at least would be shocked if they were a team that was like, well, this didn't work. We're going to completely blow it up and rebuild because they've, you know, Rick Carlisle wasn't probably coming to Indiana to go through a rebuild. He's going to want to be competitive. So um, I would sooner see that they would move a big or move a big and one other piece and try to get, you know, a consolidation move where maybe they could get a higher tier star potentially, or do something along those lines rather than we're going into rebuild mode. But yeah, I mean, the Turner Sabonis is the age old question. I, 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 the other day I was like, I wonder how many articles I've written about this and how many times I've been asked about it. And, you know, somewhat my opinion has evolved over time, the more that each of them has kind of changed somewhat as players and, and grown in different areas. And it almost changes every year too, because I don't know exactly what it's going to look like under a new coach. I, I start to get a sense of what it looks like under Nate McMillan and then it changes. And then, you know, what it might be under Nate Bjorkren and then it changes. So they've only been starting for a short time. And part of the evaluation process there is, is we haven't seen the two of them together in the playoffs because they did play some minutes against Boston, but they weren't starting together at that point in time. So it wasn't that, you know, we're really invested in this and how are we going to make this work in a playoff situation? Now in the regular season, I think they can find ways for it to work. If you get into the playoffs, I think they're going to come across certain matchups. You're eventually going to come against the team that's going to be able to play small ball and is going to be able to throw different things at you, and that's going to be the bigger hurdle for it. I mean, Rick Carlisle said, I think, to me, the right things at at Media Day, said that they both have unique skill sets and positive elements and indicated, you know, I think they can play effectively together. I have this quote here, and he said, but I also believe there may be a formula that's slightly different than today's sort of modern formula of five-out running gun, high-volume three-point shots. Now, I don't disagree with that, and I, I think that he showed that he can adapt. The Mavericks didn't just run only five-out stuff, but then today there was video coming out of practice where Goga and Sabonis and Miles were, like, running, setting flare screens for each other to fade to the corner and shoot threes. So this remains to be seen. Maybe maybe they think that that can happen, but it kind of goes back to the Eric Gordon article of, you know, only about 27% of Miles' threes were contested last year. And, you know, I don't know how much of a weapon this is going to be for Sabonis, but the difference for Sabonis is he can run handoffs. He can do stuff on ball. You can set back screens for him and he can attack and three man actions. So, and he is just such a good and smart, savvy screener that you can kind of find other ways to work around that. Whereas miles kind of has to be the person that's spacing out around. So, you know, definitely for him, if he's somebody that could extend his range and, and get it out there a little bit further, where maybe those closeouts are longer that that could make a difference, but Remains to be seen how the two of them will be used when preseason actually starts. Well, that Rick Carlisle quote caught my eye as well. Um, You know, as I'm thinking about the trends of basketball over time, which is something I've focused a lot on maybe the last year or so since I've moved more towards NBA draft coverage is where's the league trending? You know, where was it five years ago? Where is it now? Where's it going to be in five years? And I think that this thought process of the pendulum swinging back into the direction of every five in the league is getting smaller and thinner and more perimeter based. Let's go big. Let's hammer the ball inside and have interior mismatches to not necessarily score on the block, but create offense from down there. And and with a guy like Sabonis, you can do that, especially if Turner is an effective three-point shooter and floor spacer in in the right moments. 
So there's, there's certain value to be had in going against the grain. Now, yeah. the question is, are these the two guys that fit together well enough to do this? And, and that's where I really get caught in the roster construction side of things. You know, the last couple of drafts, the Pacers have, have added, you know, Goga and Isaiah Jackson this year. And, and that's such a unique way to fill out this roster when you yeah. already have two big men that are already there. So as I'm looking at this moves, I'm trying to figure out for myself, are they just stocking up the, the rest of the front court and making sure they have depth so they're not in a tough position when they inevitably deal one of Sabonis or Turner, move a little bit smaller and keep up with the rest of the league in that regard? Or are they truly building a too big roster where they want depth behind each of them? And, and, and I can't figure out for the life of me <laughs> kind of what the direction and the aim is of this team. And I think, you know, having different coaches in there year after year makes it challenging to figure right. that out. I would have put McMillan more in a two big category than I would have Nate Bjorkren. Carlisle, a little bit of everything. He's had success in so many different ways. And, and he's such an established coach that you never know if he's going to want to just put his print imprint on the team or really adapt to get the most out of what the roster has. I mean, do you think this is this is their long-term plan here, that they really do see these guys as sustainable and, and playoff contenders together? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Even with Nate McMillan, there were times where he would be like, you know, that's not a great lineup for us before they started doing it and would say, you know, they're both fives. They're both ideally fives. So I wouldn't say that he necessarily did it reluctantly. It was more like, you know, these are who our two players are and we got to find a way to work, make it work. We're a small market team, like, we have these two talented players, but um, I don't have sourcing on this, but my assumption has always been that when they drafted Goga, they did it with an eye of, okay, now we've drafted this talented big at this spot and we can evaluate the two bigs that we have and flip one of them and Goga is going to be the backup. Now in Goga's first year, he did not really look ready for that particular job. I mean, he's never had the opportunity to play and get better though, really either. I mean, his role has basically been, if one of them gets hurt, he gets to play or else he gets like a five minute spurt over the first and second quarter. And if he does somewhat well, he might get another one of those, or if they're in a blowout, he might get another one of those at the end of the game. But with Isaiah Jackson, I know that they've been talking about working with him on his shot and they see I mean, they've indicated that they see him able to play the four. So if he can play the four and provide some weak side rim protection, which isn't something that they've readily had. And he also like, I don't want to get over the moon and make some ridiculous comparison, but he has some BAM like qualities and his ability to switch out and challenge shots on the perimeter. And I think his passing is a little bit underrated. Like, I think that his, he showed some stuff in the short roll in summer league. He showed some stuff in the high post and being able to make um, reads out of like scissor action or, or split cuts up above him. So um, if you could do that, then maybe you see him playing alongside Sabonis and maybe that's the type of guy that you need to be able to make Sabonis playing at the five work, or maybe you just want to lean even more heavily into defense with miles and maybe, you know, he can develop as more of the passer and miles can still be doing some floor spacing. But to answer your question, I don't think they envision it as like a double big offense all the time. I think that they're seeing that they're going to, I mean, they've mentioned that they plan on staggering miles and Sabonis. They went and got Torrey Craig. They have Isaiah Jackson. They have O'Shea Brissett. They have more options now to play at the four spot, not to mention at media day. Like I raised a little bit of an eyebrow, not in um, an inquisitive way somewhat that miles mentioned that he wants to be established more as a two-way threat. He talked about wanting touches. So We'll see how that goes. I don't know exactly where those touches are going to come from when you have like, you know, you're not going to run offense through miles the way you're going to run offense through Sabonis 
And, you know, you got Karras and Brogdon when TJ Warren's back. That's another guy who needs the ball. So they're talking a lot. They're buzzwords on selfish basketball and really being able to move the ball to the open man. So um, I think that's where Miles is coming from. He didn't really say it from a prickly place, but it does sound like he's in a spot where he wants to get more involved. So maybe that in part is why they envision staggering them, because that's going to be easier to do when they're not both on the court. I don't know. I mean, he talked about wanting to be more involved as a screener as well. So. The Pacers are sneaky to me. They're really, really sneaky, good team. And there was an element of, hey, let's run it back because we haven't seen this team at full strength yet. We don't want to make too many decisions, uh, you know, jumping to conclusions about what we are and what we aren't because with the bubble, the pandemic, all these things, it was kind of a lost year, but they believe in Levert. He's shown flashes of being an unbelievable talent on kind of that combo guard wing spot. Brogdon has produced incredibly well since coming to the Pacers. TJ Warren, can we get bubble TJ Warren back? That guy was awesome. Sabonis is an all-star. We know what Turner's capable of. TJ McConnell and O'Shea Brissett really blossomed with the opportunities that they had last year. Like there, There's a lot to like with this team. And for me, it's so refreshing to finally have a team that's not, hey, we're a collection of stars or we're blowing it up and just getting super young so that we can someday try to get that collection of stars. That what we have is good enough. The sum of the parts is going to be, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. We're going to figure this out. And we're going to make another run at it. That's refreshing to see. And what I like about Rick Carlisle is that he is known for kind of balancing his offenses pre-Luca. Yeah. Right, pre-Luca. right. But that's, that's one thing that he was always great at is having a really deep playbook getting a lot of different guys involved. He had different Iverson actions and, and staples of his playbook that had so many wrinkles to it. They were almost impossible to scout, impossible to guard, but he could micromanage a little bit for lack of a better term and get each guy into a position where they can succeed. I think there's enough offensive talent with this team that it, that should work. Uh, what have you seen in looking at Rick Carlisle's playbook, his time in Dallas? Cause I know you've, you've <laughs> dove into that quite a bit, but what are your thoughts on you know things that get you excited about Rick Carlisle's presence with this roster specifically? Right. You bring up the Iverson stuff, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, there's a lot of team ball from the guard positions where both are up top. I think there's going to be room for Brogdon and Lavert to both handle, but they'll bring, you know, be it Lavert off the Iverson, and then you can buddy up. So the one of the screeners out of the Iverson sets at the elbows will then go and set a ball screen for Levert catching the ball. And then on the other side, you might have Brogdon where they'll then throw a boomerang pass to the other side for that guy to attack off a step-up screen. So you're just keeping the defense off balance. And I think that makes a lot of sense. If you have, you know, Brogdon and Sabonis on one side of the floor, Levert and Turner on the other side, and then you can have TJ Warren working the baseline. He, he's very good, sneaky baseline cutter. So, and, and good in the side to side action. So that's just one in particular that I think, makes a lot of sense but um and what you say too that you know he has a lot of wrinkles within the same stuff when they were in summer league like you'd see the exact same like elevator screen alignment where they're bringing a shooter up through the middle and you'd think you know what they were up to but then one time it would it would be to flow into a spain action another time they would clear out and it would become pick and roll another time you know it, it might become another one of their iverson sets or they might become iverson before they go into the elevator screen but the alignment was identical so being able to predict what they were going to do out of that but um one thing that i really do like and i mentioned it earlier with the bigs working on the flare screens is that on the weak side they're pretty much always flaring the wing and sometimes like 
they they sneak in flare screens and stuff that ends up being a diversion. So it's like, oh, we're gonna make this look like we're running circle, but in reality, it's just like delay into into Chicago yeah. or you know another one that they like to do is um veer pin so that mm -hmm. if you do have a big who's a non-shooter there's a lot of veer pin action so that they're moving and you have to defend that and then sometimes the person on the other weak side would just set a flare screen even though there's nobody even over there like there's nobody to even fade to the corner but the person defending it is feeling that body behind them and sensing oh somebody's going to the corner when it's not going to happen so i think he does a pretty good job in a way that like I know they're talking about shooting a lot of threes and the Pacers could stand to shoot more threes and establishing that. But I think that there's a lot of sneaky ways where he can work with bigs too, that may not be super accurate shooters. One thing that I really like that he and Terry Stotts do up in Portland is connecting flare screens to a ball screen. Yes. Because that's making you defend two things. Plus, if your big is like, let's say it's Sabonis and he isn't a great shooter and that person sags off, well, then the guy with the ball who's coming off the ball screen is going to have a wide open pull up three to just step into it. Or if you do play Sabonis closer, like, oh, that ball screen's coming, then the person coming off the flare can curl right to the basket. So it's just little things like that that give them small edges, small advantages that you may not notice that I think will be really interesting to watch from Rick Carlisle once he starts implementing some of this stuff in. Yeah, you, you brought up so many great points there. And, and I mean, the weak side action, just occupying help defense. If you know a flare screen or even a simple exchange on the weak side right. is coming, you're paying more attention to that than you are to the basketball. That half step of staying a little bit closer to your man, just having that seed in the head of the defender is really important to, again, clearing the rim a little bit more so there's a higher field goal percentage on those attempts within three feet. I think that Carlisle does a great job of occupying help side defenses with a lot of his his playbook and his actions. And, and the great part about Iverson sets, which, you know, for us, I, I know we're automatically thinking about, but just for, for restating simply, you can play two bigs in those areas because you have both of them at the elbows as screeners. A lot of times they'll cross and, and screen for each other and to go into, you know, a side ball screen on one end to step up on the other, a double drag type of screen where the first one is slipped or, or dived on a, you know, a, against an aggressive defense, or sometimes if it's a shooter, he fades it out to the corner, right. similar footwork for those shooters as if they're shooting one of those flare screens for a big off the corner. So really a lot of continuity, but so much that he can do within the, the offense in the playbook there. Uh, I thought it was a, a slam dunk hire for, for Indiana, uh, not just because he's an established coach and is going to help get a team that probably is talented enough to make the playoffs, going to get them a little bit more weaponized once they reach there because of the experience that he has and, and how many great teams he's been a part of. What's one player, one aspect of this Pacers team that you would identify as the X factor this year? There's one thing that you're watching to say, this is how I know the Pacers are going to be really successful. What is it? Right. So, I mean, I feel like the constant one here that I always say that I'm watching is Miles, because if he can start to establish himself, like, I mean, I, I said that earlier, I don't really know where some of the touches are going to come from, but you know, if, if, he, if he comes back and he's improved in areas, which it seems as though he put a lot of work in this summer, that changes what you can do with him and what your spacing is like around him. Cause even if you are, you know, you're running a, a delay set with Sabonis up top and, and Sabonis goes and hands off into a pin down. Like that wasn't really something Miles can do. Like you're not bringing a five man off of that to shoot in motion, but watching them do some of their drills today where they were working on footwork, like you're mentioning in some of those ways, that makes things different. Like if, if you can find your marks in that, but one 
let me bring up someone else. And, and you will like this because you do all this draft coverage. I actually think Duarte matters quite a bit for the Pacers. I really do. Because after losing Doug McDermott to San Antonio, they're really the only motion shooter they have is Justin Holiday. Like Brogdon can shoot off of screens, but that's not, you know, he's not really going to be flying off a stagger and shooting a lot. And you watch like when, you know, the Mavericks in quarters and they're setting guard to guard screens or are there one, four flat and a guard will come up and set that guard to guard screen and, and, and drift out. And then they'll set another screen for the big to kind of come out to the corner. You got to have somebody who can put some tension. If you're the guy running and doing the running slip, I feel like that can be Duarte. They run a lot of Spain actions. If you need the guy that's going to be a back screener and again, be leaking out of those back screens and actually pull a defender with them. I feel like that can be Duarte. If you're running a lot of dribble handoffs with Sabonis and you need to have some of that replace some of that chemistry that's now lost with Doug McDermott. I feel like that can be Duarte. He's probably their best tough shot maker. If he can carry some of that over out of the grouping that they have, in addition to just being able to create space and hit a pull-up three, a lot of, a lot of teams, um, the first time I noticed it was against the Pelicans where with Brogdon and it was before Karis LeVert came back, Lonzo Ball was just ducking under every Brogdon screen because, you know, Brogdon doesn't have a super quick release and he hit better on pull-up threes last year. But it's like, if we can take that away and we can prevent you from putting Sabonis in, in, in the short roll and then we can stay home on everybody else, this is the chance we're going to take. And then when Sabonis was flipping the screen, they were blitzing. So it really blew up some stuff for them. So if they can have somebody on ball who can hit pull-up threes, I feel like Chris Duarte can, can help them. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely an X factor in a lot of, a lot of ways. Anytime you draft a 24 year old rookie, essentially you're, you're hoping for some immediate impact there. Uh, you know, rookies don't always play great roles on playoff teams or have the best statistical profile for their on off numbers. Like it's, it's very hard to come into the NBA and make an impact right away. But because of the specific role that he has, the experience playing in, in big games at Oregon in the past and his age, just simply he's, you know, he's pretty mature. Uh, that puts him in as good of a position as anybody else to come in and, and really help a playoff team right away as a rookie. So I thought the Pacers did a great job in the draft this year. You know, certainly Jackson had a couple head scratching uh, thoughts because is this a position of need? What's the long-term plan for trying to get him minutes? They envision him as a four, like you were mentioning, which opens up a little bit more. Still fascinating to see how he develops because he's very raw and, and still a, quite a, a ball of clay in a lot, yeah. of, a lot of areas offensively. So curious to see uh, how that all works out for the Pacers. But, you know, looking forward to the NBA as a whole, Caitlin. What are some of the biggest storylines that you're watching this year? What, what's, what's on your radar? Uh, this is, we've had a lot of basketball in the last year and a half since that the bubble really started. It's amazing that, you know, the NBA playoffs from last year were less than 365 days ago, still crazy and mind blowing to think about, but what are you watching moving forward? What's the biggest storyline on your radar? So can I pick a really nerdy one? Is that acceptable in this space? Of course. Because I've had these conversations now with one person, I believe, who works in like an analytics department and another scout. And I'm curious to get your feedback on this. Um, so during the NBA finals, there was a lot of debate. I know Jeff Van Gundy brought up, like, should the Bucs have been top locking Devin Booker whenever they were using drop coverage and lock and trail? And my initial thought on that was no, because um, you live with what he's going to be giving you from mid-range in an effort to shut down everything else. There could have been strong side counters. So 
anyways, like using that as an example, I've had people mention, what is the future of top locking going to be? Because they feel like the, the, the murmurs out there are that teams are getting better at countering it. And you can kind of see like Phoenix did have counters ready, which was another piece of this that, you know, they go into Spain actions where, you know, they'll have the person flow into that if somebody top locks them or you might you know kind of grapevine between a stagger so that you're getting that guy who's ready to top lock you off and then be able to go or um some teams will use like those corner dho's so that if, if you are getting forced baseline you'll sprint straight to the corner off of a guy like you know sabonis or ben simmons and then immediately be getting a, a three that way so it feels like teams are getting better at this so what do you feel like the future of top locking is is this still a viable defensive strategy yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and it's a, a complex one from a statistical standpoint, because the only guys that you want to top lock are, you know, the elite shooters. So if right. you're doing it, you're doing it for, for a reason. Um, as we, you mentioned with the Suns did a great job weaponizing their counters. I've seen a lot of cross screen down screen that automatically flows out of that. If I'm in the corner trying to come up for a handoff or come off a screen and you force me away from it, I'm going away. Whoever was supposed to set the screen pops out. We hit him, and then it turns into kind of a cross-screen, down-screen action. I think the Pacers even did a little bit of those inverted ball screens for Sabonis, where if he right. was trying yes. to, to dribble yeah. into a handoff with somebody, if I'm being top-locked and I'm supposed to get a handoff, I'm just going to go and put two defenders essentially back-to-back -back with each other and set a screen for Sabonis to go to his left hand. Saw that a million times at the beginning of last year. Um, the future of top-locking, that's an unbelievable question. Because, yeah, you bring up that because Phoenix was top locking Doug McDermott in Phoenix, yep. and they were always running those like Siakam esque pitch plays to get Sabonis going to his, his strong hand. And right. then they would just have Doug McDermott set an inverted pick and roll at the elbow, yep. and then Sabonis would go around it and score. So, and I think yeah. there's it, it all depends on the, the action that's within it, right? So the Pacers got really good last year with staggers for McDermott. Like that was with their second unit. Yeah. A huge Leveraging those into drives. Right. A huge source of offense, not just for, from McDermott, but the spacing that him coming off staggers provides. And if you're top locking, it provides a lot of options for secondary screens. You know, the, the first screener is typically a guard. The second in a stagger is a bigger body. If McDermott rejects both screens and just cuts back door, now it turns into a single down screen. The flow of the offense isn't necessarily dead. I'm really curious, just to add to the nerdery that we're going on, here, <laughs> how much stagger screens and, and you know combo screening actions really factor into that. Um, you know, if it's an isolated single down screen, which the Suns did a lot of, trying to get Devin Booker in space a little bit easier to top lock as a way of disrupting offense. If it's a stagger, I think that you lose a lot more than you potentially gain because the quickness of the counter is pretty evident. I think that the, the defenses will yeah. continue to evolve and start to scout out with, for example, Phoenix and say, all right, we know that if we top lock Devin Booker, he's going into one of three actions we're going to find a way to blow that up no matter what it ends up being, whether it's trying to, you know, really pressure the basketball and make whoever has it drive. We're going to switch everything as soon as he backdoors after we top lock. There are ways around that with, with different tactics, but I think staggers or, or multi-man actions happen so fast that you, you can't necessarily react to, okay, now we know there's a counter coming to the top lock. Can we react to that counter? Right. Yeah, so. yeah, because I mean, there was even times with Phoenix where they'd have Aiton at the elbow and it felt like, okay, 
if they if they would have top locked Devin Booker on the other side, the eight and could have pivoted to Mikel Bridges in the corner. Maybe you feel good with Mikel Bridges just shooting the corner three, but you're going to have Brooke Lopez two nining on the opposite side of the lane, waiting for Devin Booker to have cut back. So yeah. well, out of what, range to out of range to guard. Well, what what's too bad? I feel like this is a joint project for later <laughs> in the season. Let's put our heads together on it, but. But I think what's too bad for both you and I is we're probably going to have to wait until deep into the postseason to figure out any of this stuff. (laughs) I don't think anyone's going to either do a ton of top locking consistently throughout the regular season or tip their hand offensively for what their full playbook of counters and, and, you know, uh, different maneuvers is going to be when they face that coverage. So uh, something that we'll definitely circle (laughs) back to come May and June of next year. So anything else that you're watching or, or really on your mind right now coming in, into the NBA season? Yeah. So you asked me about sleeper teams on the outline. So I have to know, yeah. what is your definition of a sleeper team? Like, is that somebody that like nobody's talking about? Is it somebody that's like a potential contender? What, what is a sleeper team? Yeah. For me, a sleeper team is a little bit more so they have what it takes to go farther in the postseason than most people are thinking. For some, that's just making the postseason, right? Mm-hmm. We think their season's going to end on it on April 15th. And now this is a legitimate team that should be a, a playoff team. For others, it's they're seen as a you know, play-in team or a, a five or a six seed. But I think that they sneakily are going to win a first-round series or, or maybe even make it to the conference finals. I don't know if there's anybody on your radar that you think just doesn't get enough love, but is built for postseason success. I think I'm leaning Denver, Denver because I think that Jokic is kind of the ultimate floor raiser. I mean, even after Jamal Murray went down, they still won a lot of games towards the back end. And if you think about it, they also didn't have Will Barton. They also didn't have PJ Dozier and they didn't have PJ Dozier's defense in that Phoenix series, which obviously hurt them quite a bit with only having Faku and Austin Rivers. So If you look at that, plus, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily, it might be somewhat of a blessing in disguise if you can use this early portion of the season to kind of establish Michael Porter Jr. and hopefully get him to work on some of the weaknesses that he has. His handle is not really there. Being able to make better, like as good as he is at being a tough shot maker, that's kind of what he is, is a tough shot maker. So being able to make better reads off of screens, I think even just being able to create his own shot a little bit opens up a little bit more if you don't have Jamal Murray there. And then if Jamal Murray is able to come back towards the back end of last next season and you still are able to rack up wins even without him, as they've shown they can do with Jokic, then I like their chances in the playoffs. Yeah. We'll have to see what Jamal Murray looks like when he gets back, but it's a, it's a really good pick. And, and to me, Aaron Gordon is a lot of that X factor. How much is he going to add if he's there for a full year? How much more does that pop now that their guard depth is somewhat rebuilt? Obviously, Murray is the, the key piece in their backcourt, but they've got a lot of really talented pieces and guys that fit. And man, I, I was probably way too low on Bones Highland going through the draft. <laughs> that kid is fun. Like yeah. he's, he's super fun. He drills shots. And if his basketball IQ really shows out, I think Denver is the, the perfect spot for him to, to be him and kind of play his game while also being surrounded by high IQ players like Jokic that are just going to, to get him quality looks. Uh, they're, they're, they're fun. They're, they're a really yeah. fun team. And that's if they can get healthy and, and stay healthy, I, I agree with you. I think that they're, they're poised for a, a deep playoff run. I think I had to use my soft spot and pick a small market team as well. I think I just, I had to. 
Long live the small market. <laughs> yeah, well, Kaylin, thank you so much for, for joining us here. The inaugural episode of the Box and One podcast. Before we get out of here, let the people know where can they find your work? Where can they follow you online? Right. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. And then I have about one or two articles per week, typically once the season picks up at any cornrows. And then if they want to check out the freelance piece, that's still on my timeline. It's called is the mere threat of a three enough to impact a defense. And then you'll be able to find that at 538. So hopefully people after listen, they listen to this are ready to come back for your next episode. And I haven't been too much of a turnoff with either talking too much or not enough about actual basketball. No, I was going to say, I think we need to shut it down here. We're a one and done <laughs> podcast because I don't know how we can top this one. This was, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on here for all the, uh, all the listeners, the viewers out there. Thank you for your time here as well in, in joining us and in, in talking hoops. You can find us at the box and one underscore on Twitter or the box and one now on Substack. Thank you so much again, Caitlin, for joining us and everybody. We'll see you soon.